The following podcast contains language and subject matter that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. This is a love letter to all black people. Very soon, a video of the execution of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald will be spread across the internet. It had been 400 days since Laquan McDonald's killing was captured on a police dash cam. Now, two days before Thanksgiving in 2015, there'd be no more waiting for the video. City leaders were scared. Scared of the community fallout. Scared of the political fallout. Scared of the unknown about to hit them. Activists were also worried about the fallout, but they were worried about something else, too. The trauma of watching another police shooting. Black people, this is a love letter to you. This is a love letter to black people. Before you watch this, I want you to know you are loved. Before you watch. It began as Facebook videos created by a group called Black Youth Project 100. Soon, it became a hashtag, giving others space to spread their own words of strength on social media. I think in that moment of just like hyper-visible police violence, we were really afraid that, you know, black death was becoming a spectacle. Activist and poet Malcolm London. The feeling is like, if you need another horrific video of someone being murdered by police to care, then you don't. Before you watch this, people will try to tell you to be calm in your righteous anger. And I say to that in the words of Frederick Douglass, the only thing worse than a rebellion is the reason for it. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, I'm Jen White, and this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. Last time on 16 Shots. When you have someone like the street deputy or lieutenant handing you a piece of paper and says, this is what your report is going to say, That becomes the truth. The police crafted a narrative about the McDonald shooting. They say that the teen closed in on them, weapon in hand, so they shot in self-defense. That narrative started to unravel. I mean, I think of the autopsy as being as close as we'll ever get to having Laquan McDonald testify to what happened to him. And a judge ordered the city to release the video. We forced the system to do something that they didn't want to do. You know what I'm saying? And that was to provide us transparency, you know, and stop hiding what you do to us. In this episode, Chicago finally sees the video. Protests put Mayor Rahm Emanuel on the defense. The city tries to balance reforming the police and cutting gun violence, all while trying to keep its cops from revolting. And Chicago's activist community forces a massive federal investigation that finds a pattern of abuse by Chicago officers. On the afternoon of November 24, 2015, Mayor Rahm Emanuel stood at a podium at Chicago Police Headquarters and announced the city was releasing the video. All of us also have to make an important judgment about ourselves and our city as we go forward. Will we, in my view, rise to this moment that this incident demands of all of us in this city? Right afterwards, Emmanuel left and headed to another event. I'm dreaming tonight of a place I know even more. 
year, Chicagoans celebrate the city's Christmas tree lighting ceremony. Thousands flock downtown to see the 60-foot evergreen lit up for the first time. And for some, that evening appeared no different, with music and lots of fireworks. Rahm Emanuel arrived soon after leaving police headquarters. Greeted by polite applause, the mayor called on, quote, the spirit of togetherness and peace. At the same time, people in Chicago and around the world were watching the video of Laquan McDonald's death. Now we're about to show you the video, and we warn you, it is graphic, and we're only choosing to show you portions appropriate for television. The entire clip Chicago police released lasts more than five minutes. The shooting of McDonald lasts just seconds. When we're watching this video, it looks as though Laquan is actually walking away from the officer, or at least not toward the officer. Emmanuel didn't mention the video at the tree lighting, but just a couple of miles away, hundreds of people converged to put it front and center. The moment the tape drops, we're taking the streets. We had put out a call. We made an event saying we're going to have this march on Roosevelt. Paige May co-founded Asada's Daughters, an activist organization. She joined a new wave of young Black activists challenging the city's political powers. The response when the tape was released, um, you have a moment of groups coming together and and many groups mobilizing and many groups coming together in different formations and coalitions. Tonight, we created this space for black rage to exist and to not be pacified. We didn't want no motherfuckers telling us to be calm and be peaceful in a moment that is not fucking peaceful. May and Malcolm London were well-known among local activists. And while Mayor Emanuel was overseeing the city's annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony, the activists led protesters through the streets of Chicago's Loop, blocking intersections. Following along were clusters of police officers. The cops, they were clearly targeting us. Um, So Malcolm was targeted. I had six cops on me. And what happened was that creates this moment where they've isolated a few of us from everyone else because they were able to close it. And so, like, you know, a thousand people are over here and there's, like, 30 of us on this side. And I remember seeing they were trying to get Damon, who was also a leader that I think they were targeting. So, you know, I ran over to try to help Damon and they grabbed me from behind. As hundreds of protesters marched farther into downtown Chicago, Tensions with police escalated. Someone let off a smoke bomb in the crowd, which was nearly an intersection away from me. And the police commander, who I've been talking to all night, because as one of the folks who was marshalling the thing, I had to talk to him. He walks up to me and he said, you responsible for that effing smoke bomb? And I laughed because, you know, I had had to talk to him all night and he had seen me all night. And I said... You know, no, uh, I'm not. And literally, as I responded, some officers, I think about eight officers, what felt like, started to begin to grab me and arrest me and put me in handcuffs. The police arrested Malcolm, who's one of the leaders of the protest. Along with London and Paige May, three other activists got arrested that night. Protesters marched to the nearby police station to demand their release. While in custody, 
May told us she grew worried when she saw London arrive with officers. All of a sudden I look up and Malcolm's coming in and I was just like, what the fuck? These cops come in and one of them has this fur hat and he's, I can hear them talking and they're like, your little monkey friend's really in trouble. Like, he's really going to get it. I was terrified for Malcolm. London faced a felony charge of punching a police officer. Prosecutors dropped the charges against him the next day, giving no explanation. The protests in Chicago were peaceful. There were a handful of arrests, but no riots. Then President Barack Obama released a statement saying he was deeply disturbed by the footage of McDonald's killing. But he added that he was, quote, personally grateful to the people of my hometown for keeping protests peaceful. Just seven months before, the country had watched what unfolded in Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray at the hands of police. Cars set on fire, hundreds of businesses damaged, a city put in the state of emergency. So when the spotlight turned to Chicago, discussions like this one on CNN focused on riots. I'm shocked there's no violence. I really am shocked. Why? Uh, you don't have to be shocked. Well, well I kind of thought maybe some, there'd be some problems in the inner why? city. No, why? You know, because, well, well, you know, the thugs like to use this as an excuse to go out there the and who? cause thugs. No, he's, I don't think you're, you're not talking about the protesters. You're no, I'm not about talking that. about these people here. Well, I'm talking to people that will actually go out and riot. Activists kept returning to the streets that week, calling for the resignations of Rahm Emanuel, top local prosecutor Anita Alvarez, and police superintendent Gary McCarthy. And then they raised the stakes. The two things that people respect, organized people and organized money. If you, whatever you do, if you do it around those two things, you're going to get results. Delmarie Cobb is a longtime political consultant in Chicago. She wrote a column that week for a newsletter she publishes saying protesters should use Black Friday to target the city's most famous shopping district, the Magnificent Mile. I'm just saying that if you close down North Michigan Avenue on Friday, on Monday, McCarthy will be gone because half of those people on North Michigan Avenue are friends of the mayor and they all have his personal cell phone number. Where are the rich people at that, that we can access, right? Like, well, Magnificent Mile. Page May. Rom is like losing control over the city in a way that gives us power. It's like, we control this city, you don't. So you will answer to us or this is only going to get worse. Keep your dollars in your pocket and take your power back. If you don't have control over your police, this is what you get. Around 1,000 people blocked traffic and entrances to many stores on North Michigan. I think I have a right to shop if I want. It's over. Once you take away my right, then I have no use for your right. Unlike protests in the previous days, this one brought out more high-profile names, like civil rights leader Jesse Jackson. The disgust is so broad and the determination is so great. We will escalate these actions, escalate downtown boycotts until some change. I hope the mayor can hear us. Jackson's presence became another source of tension. Younger and older activists didn't always see eye to eye. And that rift widened in recent years after the deaths of Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and other victims of police violence. Many young organizers had stopped buying into the idea of a single leader speaking for them. At one point, Jackson attempted to give a speech, but was booed by protesters. This is not us. This is not our discipline. A lot of the young activists basically told Reverend Jesse Jackson, you know, we don't want to hear you. You know, we don't even need you out here. This is about us. And no, it's not about you. 
It's about all of us because what's happening to you is happening to us. There's a lot of older folks who think that young people should just do what they want them to do and are really only there to be tokens, right? And so like that Black Friday march, it was it was like young people were brought in at the end to be at the front of the march to be like as just like a, a symbol. We Like previous marches, police only made a handful of arrests. Many businesses reported Black Friday sales that were 25 to 50 percent below expectations. City leaders were feeling the pressure. Do you have any concerns that you might lose your job? It's always a possibility. Following the video's release, police chief Gary McCarthy remained adamant that he had no plans to resign. But after the Black Friday protests, he noticed a difference in Mayor Rahm Emanuel's behavior. McCarthy met with Emanuel the Monday after the protests. He told us the mayor asked him how they were going to move forward. I said, I think that we don't negotiate away our power because then we empower people who you may have to argue with. And then I said, by the way, who in this administration has been through a police scandal? And I said, oh, wait, I know me and many of them. And I said, I'm the best defense that you have because I can go out there and take all the hits and you don't have to. And then I said, and after I'm gone, they're going to come after you. And he said, well, that's all well and good. He said, but let's talk about it tomorrow. That next morning, McCarthy went on a local media blitz. An editorial in that day's Chicago Sun-Times called for his resignation. It said he'd, quote, lost the trust and support of much of Chicago. As he headed to his last interview, McCarthy checked his phone. The mayor uh, texted me and said that he wanted me in his office at 8.30. And this is like 8.15. And I said, well, I'm going to WGN. I said, do you want me to skip that interview? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. Looked at my driver. I said, well, that's that. Here we go. Let's go get fired. And I walked into the mayor's office and I said, I guess you don't want to hear my plan, do you? And he said, no, I don't. He said, I think you should resign. And he went into this whole litany of politics. And when it was all done, I said, no. I said, I'm not going to resign. I said, I just told 2.8 million people that I'm not resigning, and I would resign if I did something wrong or if uh, I was quitting, and I'm doing neither. And eventually the meeting ended when he said, uh, well, I'm the mayor, and that's what I'm going to do. And I said, well, you could do whatever you want to do. And those are the last words I spoke to him. Soon after, Mayor Emanuel announced McCarthy was out. He has become an issue rather than dealing with the issue and a distraction. I have a lot of loyalty to what he's done and him, but I have a bigger loyalty to the city of Chicago, its future, and the strength of that future. McCarthy's firing didn't relieve the pressure on the mayor. So a week later, in front of the city council, he talked about Laquan McDonald's death and his city's police head-on. What happened on October 20th, 2014, should never have happened. Supervision and leadership in the police department and the oversight agencies that were in place failed. And that has to change. I am the mayor. As I said the other day, I own it. Emmanuel is famous for his blunt-in-your-face style. But for almost 40 minutes, he was apologetic. The problem is referred to as the code of silence. It is his tendency to ignore. It is a tendency to deny. It is a tendency in some cases 
to cover up the bad actions of a colleague or colleagues. One young man asked me a simple question that gets to the core of what we're talking about. Do you think the police would ever treat you the way they treat me? And the answer is no. And that is wrong. And that has to change in this city. That has to come to an end and end now. No citizen is a second-class citizen in the city of Chicago. Rahm Emanuel wasn't facing re-election for another three years, but others were forced out. Top prosecutor Anita Alvarez, the police department's chief of detectives, the head of the city agency that investigates police shootings, all either retired, resigned, or met the wrath of voters at the ballot box. Then there were the thousands of rank-and-file police officers. They still had a job, and it was about to get a lot tougher. That's next. When the video of Laquan McDonald's death was released, something shifted in Chicago. Protesters were out in the streets in a way the city hadn't seen in years. The police superintendent was fired. A police officer faced murder charges for an on-duty incident, the first time in decades. The mayor gave a big speech that acknowledged the existence of a police code of silence. And trust between cops and the community seemed worse than ever, especially in black neighborhoods, like one on the west side where Jackie Campbell was a patrol lieutenant. You don't see people get killed every day. And so it don't look good. If somebody was able to sit down every day and see the dirty work of policing, you know, where you're, you're coming on jobs and people are dying or taking their last breath, it don't look good. And maybe some people, this was the first time that they saw death. Somebody die. That's going to change everything. Campbell drove us around her old district. It's a part of town where McDonald had spent part of his childhood. And when the video of his death was released, she says her job felt different. I was working the streets after it happened. I remember it was somebody whose whose car had stopped up in the area that we're going to now, Chicago Avenue and Central. Car was stopped in the middle of the street. And I got out of my vehicle to help the person push the car out the street. And I don't have to do this, but I am. I remember people were walking by and it was like, fuck the police, excuse my language, but this is not even a situation where I even need to be, you know, helping somebody push their car out the street. But just that, I suppose, that anger that people had, they don't like the police, and that just gave them even more reason not to like the police. Campbell says the video changed how officers did their work. You know, I'm trying to do the best job that I can, and I'm going to be judged after the fact based upon some actions that I made in a split second From the one perspective, it might be good in that officers will carefully, before they make any decision, evaluate it from all different sides and only make this decision if this is the totally right thing to do and they can justify this under a microscope. So that's good. But the bad thing about it is how many officers are going to say, you know what, I'm just going to just give you your piece of paper, your police report, and I'm gone. Once people had seen the video... Campbell worried more about officer safety. What if a cop got dispatched to a call and came under attack? And what if that officer called for backup and didn't get it? I've been, I've been beaten. I used to have long hair. My hair was pulled out. So what you hope for is to hear those sirens coming to help you. 
you know, if you interview 10 officers, nine will say, I'm still going to run towards the gunfire. But it's going to be one officer that's going to say, I don't want any problems. That's not my job. They didn't give it to me. They gave it to that guy. I'm going home. So the McDonald video seemed to increase hostility toward officers, and it seemed to affect how they did their job, or at least how they felt about doing their job. At the same time, officers had to start filling out a longer form whenever they stopped someone. Many cops thought what they wrote on it might be used to discipline them, even prosecute them. So officers faced not only more hostility, but more paperwork. And to see how they responded, you have to look at just one thing. The number of stops by Chicago police, it dropped by more than 80%. Campbell and many others say officers were pulling back. She says that was a problem. Because you're not confronting, you're not questioning, you're not investigating, I would say that people will have stuff out here. They will have guns. They will have drugs. You might be passing by the victim of the next drive-by shooting. Sometimes people would get stopped and it would save their life. As officers pulled back and complained of disrespect and too much paperwork, something happened that shook the city again. The grim tally is in. 50 people shot this weekend, three of them children. NBC News spent... Police in Chicago are facing pressure to bring the city's rising violence under control. Shootings and violent crime have skyrocketed in Chicago. The city has had more murders this year than Los Angeles and New York combined. More than New York City and Los Angeles combined. More than New York and Los Angeles combined. Chicago had averaged less than 500 murders a year over the previous decade. In 2016, there were almost 800. It's always hard to figure out what's driving a change in a city's homicide rate. Chicago's shooting surge might have had to do with social media provocations, the fragmentation of street gangs, the rise of opioids. But the theory that got the most attention from city and police officials was what Lieutenant Campbell was talking about. Mayor Rahm Emanuel referred to it as officers going, quote, fetal. The impression was that cops had stopped policing proactively and that criminals had taken advantage. Now, there's another thing that might have been going on here that might have been contributing to Chicago's shooting surge. WBEZ's Chip Mitchell has been hearing about it in violence-torn neighborhoods on the city's west side, where he's been based for years. He'll take the story from here. Derek Brown teaches boxing to teenage boys he finds hanging out on West Side streets. To draw the kids in, he sometimes sets up a few punching bags right on a corner. A corner like this one, where a shooting the other night injured four people. Brown also runs a restorative justice program for a church. I can go to any gang corner and talk to these guys and they'll listen. They know who I am. They know when I come, I come for business. He says he climbed the ladder inside a big West Side gang, then left it about 10 years ago. I get troubled youth, at-risk youth, high gang potential, shooters. Brown says he noticed their mindset change after the city released the dash cam video of Laquan McDonald getting shot. And he suspects the same thing was happening in other low-income neighborhoods. Everyone seen the same video, and everybody realized that we're having the exact same problem. I talked to some of Brown's students One said when he watched the video, he saw himself in Laquan McDonald. And the first time he saw it, he watched it again and again. Over 30 times at that time. And I actually watched it again over the months because it's like, dang, they really shooting at the man for what? It just kept going on in my head. 
Brown says the video ignited something and that it still affects his students and their peers. They are mad and don't know how to channel that anger. Instead of them lashing out on the authority figures, they're lashing out on each other. Then... Once one corner shoot at one corner, of course the other corner is going to bust back. So Brown's point is that the Laquan McDonald video actually set off anger and cycles of violence in low-income neighborhoods around the city. At the same time, it was harder for police to interrupt those cycles, to identify the shooters and lock them up. I learned more about that problem on another West Side corner. A handful of young men were there selling weed packed in sandwich bags to people passing through in cars. I let the window up. Get the fuck off. One of these guys had a chubby face and a big wad of cash. He told me he first saw the McDonald video in state prison. Yeah, I was with a gun charge. Yeah, I was with a gun charge. Yeah, I was in Jacksonville Correctional Center. I saw the videos on CNN. When he got out of prison, he ended up hustling on the streets again. Only now, having seen that video, he said he was less likely to talk with police. Before, before Laquan McDonald died, before I got incarcerated, like it was, a, it was also a poor meal. I talked to him like, "What's been going on? We heard, we heard some shooting been going around." Like, well, I tell him like, "Yeah, you know, my, somebody tried to come up and rob us with a firearm, and we didn't give him our money and none. We ran, and they got the shooting." You would tell them what happened. They might be actually able to yes, get. Yes, before Laquan McDonald died, a motherfucker might get some information about what happened. Now, now after he died. I walk away from him. I just throw my hands up. Officer, I ain't got nothing. I ain't do nothing. I'm just walking past. You know, they'll pot your pockets, and that's that. If you don't got no weapon, they're going to leave. That's how I feel. That's how my friends feel. That's how the people I hang with feel. And I'm pretty sure that's how other, other black people that's out here in the streets, selling marijuana, whatever you're doing, bro, that's how we feel. This West Side drug dealer, he'd been near shootings, which means he could have helped police solve some if he wanted to. And when Chicago's gun violence was at its worst, the police department all but begged for information about the shooters. But it didn't come. Last year, the city's murder clearance rate dropped to an historic low point. Nearly five of every six murders went unsolved. That sets Chicago apart from Los Angeles, New York, and most other big cities. So many of the killers remained at large. So on the streets, cops are feeling the hostility of Chicagoans upset by the video of a police officer fatally shooting a 17-year-old. Many officers say they're policing less aggressively, pulling back, avoiding risky encounters so they don't end up on the news. Murders are soaring, and police are getting less and less help from the people in the communities where most of the violence is taking place. This is what was happening in Chicago when the U.S. Justice Department under President Obama came in to ask citizens what they thought of their police department. It was that federal investigation that held out some hope that after a long history of police abuse, after decades of broken promises, things might finally change in Chicago. That's just ahead on 16 Shots. To understand the Laquan McDonald killing and the way the city's government and its people reacted, you have to understand Chicago's history. Like a lot of American cities, there are deep divides between the police and Chicago's communities of color. That divide was arguably widest in the days right after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Like other cities, Chicago was rioting. The mayor, Richard J. Daley, literally ordered the police to kill the citizens of Chicago. 
He didn't say black citizens, but that's who he was referring to. That infamous order in 1968 is a symbol of the violence Chicago police have perpetrated in black communities, so-called police-involved shootings, wrongful arrests, forced confessions. In the midst of being interrogated in that area, too, I was brutally tortured for 25 hours for a crime I did not commit. The most notorious scandal in Chicago police history involved torture by Chicago detectives under Commander John Burge. One of the victims was Aaron Patterson. Plastic bag over the face, electrical prods, uh, cattle prods, where they shock you in your private parts, or attach clips to your ears and generate electricity to you. More than 100 people, almost all of them black men, made documented complaints of police torture under Burgess' leadership. Burge was eventually fired, but the torture lasted two decades, stretching into the 1990s. Over the past 50 years, Chicago has had a blue ribbon panel, a commission, an independent review, and a task force all aimed at stopping the abuse of people of color by its police officers. The agency in charge of investigating bad cops has been scrapped and replaced three separate times. Usually these moves were the city's response to some outrageous police scandal, but attention would eventually fade and the changes wouldn't stick. But see, those things are done to just please the community for a moment. So if you're going to keep pleasing the community for one, and I understand this, you can only use a repeat for so many times before people realize what you're doing. Richard Wooten became a Chicago police officer in 1993, the same year Burge was kicked off the force. He retired a few months before the McDonald video came out. We didn't have report after report after report. And you get some of our uh, elders around here, and they'd be looking like, man, you know what, that happened back in 1960-something. And here we are, still, eating the same soup. At first, the city's response to the Laquan McDonald video followed that familiar pattern. The video was released in November of 2015. Within a month, the police superintendent was forced out. The mayor made a public apology and appointed his own police accountability task force. But this time, the people of Chicago were not satisfied with the usual answers. Right after the McDonald video came out, people started calling for the federal government to come in and force permanent change on Chicago. Mayor Rahm Emanuel wouldn't talk to us for this podcast, but his record is clear. Emanuel immediately pushed back against federal intervention and pointed to ongoing criminal proceedings. I think an additional layer prior to the completion of this, uh, in my view, would be misguided. Then, when that was met with public backlash, the mayor quickly flip-flopped. We need a third party in this city because in the past instances, we've never as a city measured up with the changes on a sustained basis to finally deal with that situation. Pushed by the McDonald video, the U.S. Department of Justice came to Chicago. Federal investigators spent more than a year digging into the whole police department from top to bottom. They poured over records, held community meetings, and interviewed rank-and-file cops. And it never would have happened if it weren't for the McDonald video and the outrage that followed. In January of 2017, Mayor Emanuel stood beside Justice Department officials, including U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch. They announced the results of their investigation. 
the Department of Justice has concluded that the Chicago Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of use of excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. This pattern includes, for example, shooting at people who present no immediate threat and tasing people for not following verbal commands. This is Assistant Attorney General Vanita Gupta. This conduct doesn't only harm residents, it endangers officers, and it erodes police community trust, trust that truly is the cornerstone of public safety. People in Chicago have been promised reform in this police department for decades. Mm. Why should anybody believe it'll happen now? Well, look, I think that we all um, recognize the value of commitment, uh, and you see the commitment here before you. This is the work of everyone. Can I say one thing, Ben, to your question? The question is, let me try to say this so you can hear it. Uh, there's a difference between holding people accountable and being cynical. So it's right to say with slightly uh, a skeptical eye, given the history of the city, what makes us believe that you're going to be sincere in following through? And that's okay, but it's not allowed to be cynical. It gets you nowhere. Repeat after me. This is not... A platform for my personal comments unrelated to the DOJ findings. Thank you very much. A few days after the Justice Department released its blistering report on the Chicago police, Reverend Jesse Jackson's organization, Rainbow Push, hosted a forum at its headquarters on Chicago's south side to go over the findings. The crowded Rainbow Push that night was almost all black and mostly older. This was not the collection of young activists who had flooded the streets the night the McDonald tape came out. But this older crowd appreciated the younger generation's anger and energy. If it wasn't for our young people, the young brothers from Black Lives Matter and the young brothers and sisters that was out there in the streets shutting the city down, we wouldn't be here right now and there wouldn't be no Justice Department. The Justice Department's review of the Chicago Police Department found a pattern of abuse. It found shootings that violated the Constitution, found uneven and unfair policing that looked much different depending on what part of the city you were in. Just about everyone at the Rainbow Push meeting agreed there were no surprises in the report. They'd experienced that type of policing and heard promises of change. For the mothers who lost their sons and daughters and their babies who was told to their faces that they were lying. If for nothing else, I want to say thank you, DOJ, because now we can say, I told you so. So we were brought here because the Department of Justice told us what we already knew. For a lot of us, it really speaks to, wow, someone finally listened to us. When Mayor Daley says shoot to kill, it has never been descended. That's the first thing you have to come down. I believe the impact of this report is synonymous to taking a cup of water and throwing it on a five-alarm fire. At one point, Richard Wooten, the retired Chicago cop, took the mic. Oh, good evening, everyone. In my 23 years as a Chicago police officer, I've witnessed the racist practices that goes on every day. But then I reflect back on November the 24th, 2015. And that was a turning point of my life that I said enough was enough. That's when the Laquan McDonald video was released. And you saw the racist and injustice behavior of Officer Van Dyke 
captured on video. If it wasn't for video, where would we be at today? It's like history is repeating itself. The people of Chicago were told that this time, this scandal would be different. That's because there would be something called a consent decree, a reform plan that would be enforced by a federal judge. So no matter what happened politically, the city would be held responsible for fixing its police department. But that promise of federal oversight was already crumbling by the time the report was released. Police departments are overstretched, they're underfunded, and they're totally underappreciated, except by me. The report on Chicago police came out just one week before Donald Trump's inauguration. And President Trump made it clear that his Justice Department would not pursue the so-called consent decree with the city of Chicago. At the same time, Chicago police officers were pushing back against reform. Hard. Just a few months after the report came out, the city's rank-and-file officers used a union election to send a clear message. To head their union, cops voted in a group of officers against increased police accountability. One of them is Northside Patrolman Martin Pribe. There's just a very intense anti-police movement in this city, spurred by the local media, which we don't feel ever gives us a fair shake. So about three months after the Justice Department report, you have officers bristling at the new scrutiny. Violent crime still dominating local and national headlines, and the new president pulling back federal support for reform. But Chicago's young activists and its black and brown citizens kept the pressure on, eventually prompting the state's attorney general, Lisa Madigan, to step in for the federal government and sue the city. The result? This summer, Emanuel and Madigan announced an agreement on a police reform plan that would be enforced by a federal judge. The consent decree at its heart addresses the findings and recommendations of the U.S. DOJ, and those changes will ultimately help us to reduce violence. It is not an endpoint. It's not a destination. It is a milestone on a pathway to a more professional, proactive police department, a safer and stronger Chicago. Jason Van Dyke is scheduled to go on trial for the murder of Laquan McDonald September 5th. In the four years since the shooting, the city's seen some changes. More body cams, more tasers, a new agency to investigate police wrongdoing. And of course, the proposed consent decree means a federal judge could oversee reforms. But in many ways, the city is still in the same place it was right before the McDonald video was released wondering if this is really going to be the moment when things change for good. Chicago is still struggling with horrifying levels of gun violence. About a month before Van Dyke's trial, Chicago suffered its most violent weekend in years. 74 people were shot, 12 killed, in one weekend. At a news conference, Emmanuel pointed the finger at the people living in those violence-stricken neighborhoods. This is not about the Chicago Police Department alone. This is about the fabric of a neighborhood and community. And there is a shortage of values about what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is condoned, and what is condemned. And police are still shooting people. This summer, Chicago police shot five people over the span of six weeks. Get out! Stay down! Stay down! 
video of one of the shootings shows an officer shoot a man as he's trying to climb the fence. Experts say police reform is key to bringing down the murders. But politically, reform and stopping crime, they're often framed as opposites. Emmanuel is running for re-election. One of his challengers is the former police superintendent, the one he fired, Gary McCarthy. And McCarthy's made the city's murder rate his main issue. While we're quote-unquote reforming, people are dying. (laughs) People are dying. Are you guys getting that? Why isn't that the issue? Before the city votes for its next mayor, they'll be watching the trial of Jason Van Dyke. Dean Angelo, the former head of Chicago's police union, lives on the northwest side of Chicago in one of the pockets of the city populated by police officers and firefighters. When we met up with him over breakfast, Angelo told us Chicago officers will be following Van Dyke's trial closely. You know, you, you wonder whether or not can he get a fair trial here. Everybody's convicted him already. A lot of the police are, are going to be concerned about the outcome. Because no matter the outcome, I think there's civil unrest. I mean, I think there should be a reaction. I'd be disappointed if there isn't. That's Pastor Marshall Hatch. His church is on the west side of the city, not far from where Laquan McDonald and his friends used to hang out. Hatch says, like the police, his congregation, and the people on the west side, they'll be watching the Van Dyke trial closely, too. I don't know the last time I saw the video, and most people haven't seen it in a while. So when the trial starts, we've got to go back through the trauma again. Now we've got to watch it another 20, 30 times. And it's going to be raw and fresh again. And I think people are going to be angry all over again. I mean, I'm not interested in any violent reaction, obviously. But I think that there's something worse than riots. And that's when we end up with a whole generation that has absolutely no confidence in the criminal justice system. If um, Van Dyke is acquitted, we'll we'll lose a generation. I think that's a worse outcome than a riot. Jason Van Dyke's trial is scheduled to start on September 5th, almost four years after the shooting of Laquan McDonald. And we'll be there, covering the trial and what happens afterward. But before that, we'll introduce you to the trial's key players. From the defense team... Nobody was in the position that my client was in. My client was in a position where he was clearly most vulnerable. To the prosecutor... It's important for all of us, myself included, to send that message to the people in this state that we will not shy away from difficult cases. And the judge. This is a complicated case, and it's not going to be run by the public saying it has to go to trial. It'll go to trial when it's fair. That's next time on 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. Sixteen Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. It was produced by James Edwards with assistance from Joe Dassault. Our reporting team includes Shannon Heffernan, Chip Mitchell, and Patrick Smith. Mike Lansu is our digital editor with help from Paula Friedrich and Gabrielle Wright. 
Our senior editor is Rob Wildeboer. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer, and Steve Edwards is WBEZ's chief content officer. Special thanks to the Chicago Tribune's Jeremy Gorner and editors Matt O'Connor, Tracy Van Morlehem, and Angela Rosa O'Toole. And thanks to the WBEZ Newsroom, whose reporting was instrumental to this series. Additional thanks to Colin McNulty, Kate Cahan, Sophie Lalonde, and Stefania Gomez. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org slash 16shots. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth, and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.